Well, hello there to whoever is listening to this. Uh, my name is Aaron, the teaching pastor at Riverwood Church. Uh, we had a little snafu with our recorder. We didn't capture all of last week's message, and so we are re-recording this message. And so just so you know, I am down at Drosty Hall where we normally meet on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. However, I am talking to an empty room. So if you're not hearing any feedback, that is why we're merely uh, recording this for posterity's sake so that we have this, as well as we believe this was a foundational message for our Philippian series, Genuine Joy, that we started last week. And so we want to jump into that. So I'm glad you've joined us. And uh, last Sunday, I asked our church family that when they meet someone, why do they ask them certain questions? You know, we get their name, but then we ask them questions like, you know, who do you know? Where are you from? Where do you work? And, and so I asked my church family, why do you ask these questions? It, it's because we're looking for a little bit of context. We're trying to understand who is it we are talking to. Have you ever had someone at, say, work or at school that you just didn't like? I mean, maybe it's because they were always angry, or maybe it's because they're just extremely socially awkward, or maybe they just have really strong opinions about politics or about movies or about sports, and their opinions just run counter to yours. And so if you're honest, inside you just don't like them. But then you find out that, that they were physically or sexually abused, and now you understand why they're angry all the time. Or, or maybe you found out that their mom actually drank while pregnant with them, and, and now you kind of understand some of their learning or social disabilities. Or, or maybe you found out that their parents got divorced, or they went through something really traumatic, and that's why they hold some of the strong opinions that they do. And, and when you learn these things, suddenly you kind of have a better understanding of them. You're a little more patient, they may not become your bestie, but you suddenly look at them a little different. That's the power of context. Last week, I was listening to an episode of The Relevant Podcast, and they were interviewing a gentleman by the name of Van Jones. I was not familiar with Van before this, but if you are, you would know that he is an anchor on CNN. Uh, you now know that I do not really watch any cable news. Uh, but he has a brand new show that just came out this past week called The Redemption Project. And in this show, I think there's eight episodes, they said, in the show, what they do is they invite families of victims of violent crime to sit down with the criminal, the perpetrator of that crime. And in some of the episodes, I guess they're pretty intense, but Van in his interview said that in some of the episodes, the family actually ends up in tears and they actually end up forgiving the criminal. And sometimes there's even like reconciliation because as they sit down with this criminal and they're asking them questions, they start learning that they grew up a victim themselves. And some of what they did, not to excuse it is okay, but some of what they did actually ends up being explained because of their background. And suddenly there's more understanding, there's forgiveness, all because the family got context. That's why I want to record this so that you can learn some of the context for the book of Philippians. I, I believe that by listening to this message and digging into Acts chapter 16 with me, you're going to understand more of what Paul explains throughout the book of Philippians, why he writes what he does to the church that's there. And I believe it's going to help your understanding go so much farther. And so that's why I enjoy, invite you to join me in the book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible right there with you, or whether it's a paper one or a digital one, would you open it up right now to Acts chapter 16, Acts 16. 
as you open up to that, uh, let me just let me just pray. Father, I just pray for the person listening to this right now that these next few uh, minutes together, even though this is uh, just digital, that this would be really, really meaningful to them, that it would help them to understand what you did about 2,000 years ago in the ancient city of Philippi. Lord, I pray that it would encourage uh, the, the listener. I pray it would challenge them to go deeper with you, and I pray it would help them to see that your beautiful, powerful gospel message is for them. And so, Lord, would you teach through me uh, in this platform, in this method right now, for your glory and for everyone's joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, as you uh, open there to Acts chapter 16, I actually want to read just a couple of verses out of Philippians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. We're actually going to study this very same, these same verses this coming Sunday. So this is Philippians 1, just verses 3 and 4. Paul writes to the church of Philippi. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. And notice how Paul is saying that as he thinks about this church in Philippi and as he prays for them, it fills him with joy. Just remembering them, thinking of them, it just brings genuine joy into his life. Today, as we go into Acts 16, we get a glimpse of some of the people that Paul is thinking about as he writes these verses in Philippians. Today, we're actually going to meet three people who Paul has the joy of watching come to know Jesus. He's going to see their lives absolutely changed by the gospel because he was willing to go there. When you come to Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul and Barnabas have been back in Jerusalem after their first missionary journey. And at the end of chapter 15, they're getting ready to head back out. And Barnabas wants to take along a guy by the name of John Mark. Uh, John Mark actually was with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. <laughs> but John Mark abandoned them in, in the middle of it. And, and so Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, is wanting to give John Mark a second chance. In fact, Barnabas is the one who got the other apostles to accept Paul. Uh, if you, you might know the story, Paul used to persecute anyone who was a follower of Jesus until he actually met Jesus. When Jesus appeared to him in a vision as he was on his way to the city of Damascus to go and arrest any Jews who proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, he meets the Messiah himself and his life is changed. But everyone's scared of him. They're afraid that maybe this is a trick. He's trying to get on the inside and then he's going to persecute the church and try to destroy it. And it's Barnabas who actually sat down with Paul, heard his story and brought him to the other apostles so that they could learn that the gospel had changed Paul too. And so Barnabas is all about giving people second chances. And so yes, 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 John Mark abandoned him and Paul, but come on, let's give him a second chance. But Paul isn't having it. Paul's like, no way. We need people who are reliable. And, and it became so contentious that Paul and Barnabas ended up splitting ways. Barnabas takes John Mark and they head off on their own missionary journey. While Paul takes a guy by the name of Silas and they head off. As you begin chapter 16, you see Paul and Silas end up in this city called uh, Derby uh, and Lystra. And, and there they meet a young man by the name of Timothy. Uh, Paul is so impressed with Timothy that he actually invites Timothy to begin to travel with them. And then you'll notice if you, if you read in there, all of a sudden the language changes. And instead of just talking about Paul and Silas and Timothy, all of a sudden it says we, which means that Luke, the author of Acts, somehow ends up joining up with these three. So now you've got four guys traveling together. They attempt to head into one city to go and preach the gospel. But Luke says that the spirit of Christ prevented us. 
Now, we don't know exactly what that means. All we know is they wanted to go to some place, but it's like God would say, now it's not time for you to head there. I've got something different. And and so they're sitting there wondering, where do we head? When all of a sudden, Paul has a vision, a vision of a man in Macedonia. Uh, This Macedonia would be in what is known as Northern Greece nowadays. And, And so they found themselves in the city of Troas, which at that time they called Asia. We would now call Turkey. As they're sitting in this city in Turkey, they, Paul has this vision, believes that it is God saying, this is where I want you to go. And so they do. They jump on a ship and they head across the Aegean Sea. They head to northern Greece. They head to Macedonia. And Mas- now Macedonia was a region, not a city. Within Macedonia were a number of cities, one of which was Philippi. And that's where we pick it up. Uh, so join me, Acts 16, starting in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, We made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who'd come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon them. So the first person that we meet here in the city of Philippi is this woman by the name of Lydia. Now, Paul's uh, kind of method, if you will, when he came into a new city, was to first head to the Jewish synagogue. Paul himself was Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. He's the Jewish Messiah. So Paul would head to the Jewish synagogue and try to help convince the Jews there that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and they are to follow Jesus. This is just the continuation of their faith. But by him not going to a synagogue tells us that there was not a synagogue in Philippi. I found out this past week that for a new synagogue to be established, you had to have 10 male Jews to establish the synagogue. Well, that means that there weren't at least 10 male Jews. And as we see here, it says that Paul and and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they end up talking to a bunch of women. And so these might be Jewish women, but they might just be God-fearers. And so Paul knew that, hey, when there's no synagogue, some people, they gather down by the river to pray. And so that's what they did. They head down to the riverbank and they start walking along and all of a sudden they see a group of people on the Sabbath and they figure out that this is probably a, a group of Jews, if not Jews, at least God-fearers. And so Paul just begins to explain the gospel to them. And one of them is this woman named Lydia. And so that's the first thing we know about Lydia is that she is a God-fearer. But I want you to notice something else about her. It says that she is from Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira is a city back over in Asia where kind of Paul and the guys came from. And, and Thyatira was uh, a well-known city for what it produced. All right, these purple goods. We'll get to that in a second. But Lydia is from Thyatira, which means she's not from Macedonia. She's not from Philippi. And so she is a foreigner. She's like an immigrant there, which just makes me go, wow, look at God. I mean, God could have sent Paul and and Timothy and the guys down to Thyatira and Lydia could have been there. But no, she's over here and she God sends her over to Philippi so that she's there when Paul and the guys are walking along that riverbank so that she can hear about Jesus. And so we we know that she's a a foreigner who's a God fearer. 
But then also it tells us that she's a dealer in purple goods, right? Probably it means that she was a dealer in purple cloth. It turns out that here in the Roman Empire at this time, only your affluent people, if you will, your aristocracy, had the ability or I guess I should say have the right to wear purple clothing. Like only certain people could wear purple, which means they were the the influencers. They were the rich, which probably means Lydia herself is quite rich. If she's dealing with these sort of people, that she has to be part of that upper crust as well, which to me is remarkable. I, I don't know about you, but when when life seems to be going really well, you know, I, I I thank God, I praise him, but I don't really rely on him. I'm not really seeking him. It's when we're looking for the job or we're looking for the relationship or we want the relationship to be repaired or we want some sort of like healing. That's when we go seeking God. When life is not good, we often seek God. But But Lydia, she's seeking after God even when life seems to be great. I mean, she is rich and wealthy. She's influential. I, we, we know that she has a house because here in just a, a little bit, she, she says to Paul and the guys, hey, if you deem me to be faithful to the Lord, please come stay. We've got plenty of room. And, and it wasn't just her by herself. It, it mentions her household. So she probably has a husband, some kids, probably some servants. And they all put their faith in Jesus. And, and so what we see here is the first person to join the church is Lydia and her family. And now Paul and the guys are beginning to establish a brand new church in Philippi. The second person we meet starts down here in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer. So as Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy are headed down to the river, they're walking along, right? They're headed to this place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Well, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I want you to take a moment to contrast this girl with Lydia. Uh, Lydia I, I find it interesting. Lydia's name here is known, probably because she was wealthy, probably because Luke and the guys stayed with her so they got to know her. So Luke records her name. But this girl, she's nameless. We, we don't really know her. I, I'll be honest. I was very tempted to, to give her a name because she mattered to God. And so therefore she should matter to us. So Lydia's name is known. This girl is not. L Lydia is quite wealthy. She's rich. She's got a house here in Philippi, very likely. She also has a house back in Thyatira. She's got, you know, not only a husband and kids, but probably servants. She's rich. This girl, she's poor because she's being exploited. She's got masters who are overseeing her. And so any money she makes, they're taking and they are manipulating her. They are taking advantage of her. L Lydia, she owns her own business. But this girl is the business. She's owned by these slave masters. And then we got Lydia, who's a God-fearer. But this girl is not seeking after God. In fact, she's opposed to God. We'll get to that in just a second. But needless to say, these two could not be any different. Now, I want you to notice there down in, I think it's a verse 16, 
Yeah, it says that, uh, that she was a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. The, the Greek actually has this phrase, a spirit of pythos or maybe python. Basically, pythos or python was a serpent-like creature in Greek mythology that uh, guarded some sort of oracle and was killed by Apollos, the, the Greek god. Well, what became a, kind of a common phrase in Greek is that anyone who was working as sort of a psychic, a, a fortune teller, they were said that they possessed this spirit of pythos. And so because we are not exactly well-versed in Greek mythology, most of our English translations put it as a spirit of divination, supposedly being able to tell right and wrong, you know, divining truth and, and that, and supposedly being able to tell people their future. So, so that's what she did. She, her job, if you will, for her masters was to read people's fortune. They'd pay this money, and then the masters were making quite a bit of profit off of her. Well, I, I want you to realize that means that this girl was demon-possessed. Now, I, I realize by, by just saying that those words, it made maybe you, as you're listening to this, just a little bit uncomfortable. I, I, demon possession, is, it's a little bit of a controversial subject. I mean, we live in a day and an age where most things can be a, a, a explained by science. Uh, and so even as we look back in the scriptures, we certain, see certain things that are described as being demon possession, most people can say, well, that can be explained away by either mental health or even physical health. You know, that, that we now know about things like multiple personality disorder or, or different things like schizophrenia. And it's a mental health issue. They weren't really possessed by a demon. They, they just were struggling with mental health. Or maybe, you know, when you see people being thrown down and they having seizures, well, they, they were going into epileptic shock or, you know, we, we explain it away. On, on the other side of the spectrum, though, are people who they think that anything and everything that's happening in the world is being influenced by demons. I mean, they, they would talk about how demons are controlling the White House or demons are even, you know, guiding churches and, and every little thing that they see that, that seems bad. It's all being done by a demon. So maybe you're sitting there wondering, well, which is it? Is, is it like there's no demons at all on one side of the spectrum or are, are demons really that powerful and active? I, I actually think it's somewhere in the middle. First of all, I'll be honest, just where I come from, some of the times when I hear about things happening that they are supposedly being, you know, done by demons, I'm skeptical. But yet, I have to be honest, I believe that demons exist. The number one reason I believe demons actually exist is because Jesus believed that demons exist. And we see Jesus having conversations with demons. We see him casting them out. So if Jesus, who could predict his own death and resurrection and go and pull it off, says that there are demons, I'm sticking with him. But also, just from my own personal experience, I know of situations where someone was demon-possessed and God, through his mercy and grace, freed them from that demonic oppression and they ended up becoming a follower of Jesus. But I only know of one case in my personal life. And so I don't believe that demons are doing anything and everything. I, I, I think that the ills in the society can be attributed to much of the sin nature of humans. I don't think we really need that much help. But I think the demons are really, really glad to help us along. But yes, I believe that there are demons, that they are active. But I also believe that if you are a follower of Jesus, you cannot be possessed by a demon. The scriptures teach that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit now lives within you. And so where the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, demons cannot come in and also live. And, and so if you follow Jesus, you cannot be possessed by a demon. And when someone is freed from that demonic oppression, I believe that is the, 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 the created the environment and space for God to enter in and shine his love. And I believe that's what happens here to this girl. 
that she was demon-possessed and God actually freed her. Now, I, I realize, I recognize that the scripture here does not use the phrase demon-possessed. It just says that she had the spirit of divination. But two reasons here why I think she actually was demonically possessed. Number one is that she is opposed to the mission of God. I mean, notice that she starts crying out. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, on the surface, that appears like she's actually for Paul. Like, she's supporting them. Like, she's yelling at everyone, Hey, guys, listen in. These guys are going to tell you all about Jesus. But if that was the case, why would Paul get annoyed? I think Paul would be going, Please, girl, keep sending them my way. No, he gets annoyed. What I believe is that she's actually trying to mock them. I believe the tone she's using is to, to be sarcastic. And I also believe she's trying to annoy them and wear them down. Have you ever been in the grocery store with a little kid who sees candy and starts saying, Mommy, I want the candy. Mommy, can I please have the candy? Mommy, give me the candy. Mommy, I have to have the candy. You know, they just keep screaming, throwing a fit, hoping that they wear you down until you go, fine, take the candy. Shut up. You're embarrassing me. That, that's what this girl is doing. She's trying to wear Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy down so that they will eventually go, that's it. We're done. We're out of here. We're leaving this city. But rather than them leave, <laughs> Paul makes the demon leave. And that's the second reason that I believe that she's actually demon-possessed. Because it says there where Paul just looked at her and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Who's he talking to? Obviously not to her, because he just referred to her in third person. He's talking to the demon. And also notice, he does not say, I command you to leave. He says, in the name of Jesus, I command you to leave. Anytime in the scriptures we see a demon being exercised out of someone, it's either being done by Jesus himself or being done in the name of Jesus. You and I do not have the authority in our own power and strength to demand a demon to leave someone. But Jesus does. Jesus has authority over all things. And so he, with the authority, can cast a demon out. And that's why you and I, if we ever were to encounter someone who was demonically uh, oppressed, the only way we could do it is under the authority of Jesus. And Paul does that. And the demon leaves the girl, which I believe brought incredible joy and relief to this girl. Think about it. She has been a slave to these human masters and to this demon. And suddenly this demon is kicked out of her. And maybe for the first time in a long time, she can now see in her right mind and she can actually think the way she needs to think. She's no longer under its oppression. And now she also is no longer going to be able to make money for her masters. And they get mad. Maybe they'll actually free her because they're like, well, we can't make any money off of her anymore. She's now freed. I think this is a sign of God's love. Even when she was not seeking after God, God still loved her enough to release her from that demon. And she's the second person to join the new church in Philippi. We've got Lydia and her household, and now we've got a poor slave girl. But there's one more person that we need to meet today. To meet that person, we've got to realize what happens. Right after Paul casts out this demon, it says that her masters realize that their, their chance for profit is gone. Like that, that he just ruined their business and they get mad. So they start lying. They start telling everyone, these Jews, now notice they pull out the race card. These Jews are trying to tell us to do things that aren't lawful for us Romans. Oh, well, first of all, that was a complete crock. 
That's, that wasn't true a bit. But they, they get the crowd all riled up because these people, they took their Roman citizenry seriously. So anyone who's trying to come against them as Romans, they, they, they're troublemakers. They need punished. And so that's what happens. Paul and Silas end up getting arrested and beaten with rods and thrown in jail. Now, I have no idea how Luke and Timothy got out of this, that they weren't arrested. But basically what we know is that Paul and Silas are beaten by rods, thrown into jail, and the jailer is even told, hey, keep these guys safe. We'll deal with them in the morning. So he puts them in shackles and leaves them locked up. So that's where we pick it up in verse uh, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Can you imagine how boring it must have been to be a first century jailer. I mean, most likely this jailer is an ex-soldier. He probably knew what it was like to have the exciting life of a soldier, to, to you know, uh, go into battle or, or to, you know, help keep the, pe- the, pe- the peace among the people, to keep them under control. And, and so as he retires as a soldier, it, it's kind of a natural fit for him to be a jailer because he would know how to, you know, demand someone to obey, to, to maybe torture someone. And so it was the right spot in the minds of many Romans. So he's probably an ex-soldier, which means he took his job seriously. But then he's just sitting there. I mean, he's got no smartphone that he can play Candy Crush on. It's not like he can check his email. I mean, the printing press hasn't even been invented. So it's not like he can sit and read a book and flip. So I suspect that he was sitting there like the other soldiers, I mean, the other prisoners, listening to Paul and Silas sing and pray. I mean, first of all, can you imagine? Paul and Silas had been unjustly arrested and thrown in prison. They were just beaten with rods. They are sore, they hurt, and yet they're singing? That's remarkable to me. And I wonder if the jailer isn't sitting there thinking, man, these guys are a little cuckoo. I mean, they just got beat, they're thrown in prison, and yet they're singing to their God. But he listens. And as he's listening, it's getting late, and he falls asleep. But as he's asleep, it says that an earthquake starts. And maybe he woke up when the earthquake started. Maybe something fell and hit him in the head and knocked him unconscious. All we know is that it says that when he woke, he looked and saw that all the doors were open. Now, I want you to realize that, yes, there's, a nat- there's an earthquake going on here, natural event. But I think there's also something supernatural going on. Because it says that all the doors are open and that their bonds are unfastened. I mean, okay, you got a jail, it, the, the, everything shakes. I can see maybe they got bad locking mechanisms on the door. So, you know, one or two would swing open, but all of them? 
Or maybe, you know, the, the, the chains, the things that they use to fasten the, the soldiers, the stocks. Maybe they weren't all well, but for all of them to be unfastened? I think there's something else going on here than just the earthquake. Now, if I were in Paul and Silas's sandals, and I was in that cell, and I say the door's open because of this earthquake, the bonds on my feet have now been loosened, I'm thinking this is a sign from God, and I'm running. I'm out of here. I mean, I was unjustly arrested and thrown in prison. I was just beaten with rods for not doing anything wrong. I've committed no crime. So I am gone. But that's not what happens. Somehow, Paul and Silas not only decide to stay themselves, they convince the other prisoners to stay. Maybe it's because they know that if they leave and escape, then whatever punishment was due to them would fall upon the jailer. Because that's what would happen. If a jailer ever lost a prisoner where the prisoner escaped, whatever was due to them, if it was lashes or, or something else, it would come upon the jailer. Which makes me suspect that one or more of these prisoners in this jail were due the death penalty. They were going to be executed. This jailer knows it. And so because he's an ex-soldier who follows orders and commands and always wants to do what is right, he pulls out his sword to kill himself. Because he's going to make sure that justice is done, even if it means to himself. Because he may as well save his leaders the trouble. They're going to kill him anyway. So because he is a duty-bound soldier, he pulls out a sword and gets ready to slay himself. When Peter, I'm sorry, not Peter, Paul calls out, Stop! Don't! We're all here. But Paul and Silas stain. It shocks the jailer. Notice in there, it says that the lights, you know, the place was probably lit with lamps. And maybe, you know, through the shaking, any lights that were in the jail cell were, were out. So he calls for lights. He calls for some of the other soldiers to bring in some lanterns. And they bring, they bring him in. And he can't believe it. It says that he falls down on his knees before Paul and Silas. I mean, here they are. They're the prisoners. If anyone's falling on their knees, it should be them in front of this jailer. But he realizes there is something different about these guys. And that's why he says, what must I do to be saved? I think because he'd been listening to Paul and Silas sing and pray, he realized there's something different about these guys. They understand God in a very different way. Maybe he'd got into Greek mythology and was trying to follow all these other gods, but it just wasn't making sense. And now he hears these guys and they're different. And he falls on his knees before them and says, tell me, tell me more says that he and his whole household gave their lives to follow Jesus. So the first church in Philippi is started by a rich woman and her family, by a poor slave girl, and now an ex-soldier and his entire household. Looking at this church and these three individuals, it tells me a few things. First is that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. I mean, just look at the variety among these guys. I mean, we've got three different social classes. We've got both genders. We've got a variety of ages because Lydia's from another nation. We've got different nationalities and they clearly have different backgrounds. These three could not be more different from each other. And yet the gospel makes all of them a part of the church, which leads me to the second point that I take from Acts 16. 
is that the church is to be multi, not mono. Church is to be a multi, not a mono. Too many churches, I think, end up being mono. Everyone dresses the same. They, they listen to the same music. They, they talk about the same things. It's like there's just one skin tone, one accent, one economic class. It's all the same. I remember in college, I was given an assignment in one of my classes to go to the local high school during the lunch hour and just simply observe the students. So I got permission from the uh, office there at the high school and because <laughs> I probably looked like I was about 12 at the time. Uh, they probably thought I was just another high school student there wondering who the creep was over in the corner. But as I watched these students, it didn't take long for me to start noticing some patterns. Over at one table, I saw a bunch of kids wearing cowboy boots, western shirts. Even a couple of them had cowboy hats. This is back in the early to mid-90s, back when country music was the number one music genre on, in, on radio. It was a really, really rough time in America's history. But these guys clearly loved country western music, and, and they, they wore it the, the way they talked. And just everything about them said that country music and, and, and everything about that was who they were. Uh, across the cafeteria, uh, there was a group that just, they had, some of them had textbooks out, the way they were acting and talking. It didn't take me long to realize that this was the nerd group. This was the smart group. Like, this is the group that took their grades seriously. They were the ones who were out for the debate team and, and they were mathletes. Well, just behind them, just a little further away from me, was probably the largest group in the cafeteria. And just based on the way they were dressed and, and, and appearances, I could tell that that was the athletic group. That was the cheerleaders. They, they were, they had a little bit more money. That was the popular crowd. And you could even see some people wanting to try and get into that crowd, but they, they just didn't quite fit and, and they were kind of being pushed away. And then over again on the other side of the cafeteria, but a little closer to me than from the uh, country western group was a small group of goth. It, you could tell in the way they were all dressed in black. Even one of them had a black trench coat. Uh, the, the way they had the eyeliner, the, these guys, I, I mean, I immediately I could just tell what kind of music they listened to, how, how they saw themselves. We like to be around people who are like us. And when we walk into a situation like a high school cafeteria, we will eventually find the people who think like us, who act like us, who value the same things as us. Because if we find people who are like us, it increases our chances of being accepted. And so we see this phenomenon happen, high school uh, cafeterias, but also at workplaces, even at family reunions, and unfortunately in a church. But if the gospel is for everyone, then your church should not be a mono. Your church should be for everyone. My desire is that if Riverwood's going to be a Jesus-centered church, we have to welcome all, which means it does not matter what your background is, what your relationship status is, what kind of job title you have, or how big your bank account is, or how small it is. It shouldn't matter how many kids you do or don't have. It also shouldn't matter if you're coming in with an addiction, or even if you have a criminal record. The gospel is for everyone. If you are a human being who is breathing, the image of God is in you. It has been distorted and destroyed by sin, but it is still there. And God is passionate about restoring that image within you. And so because Jesus died on a cross for everyone, it means we need to be a church that is welcome, ready to welcome everyone.
That means that our church, to be a healthy, Jesus-centered church, we have to have multis. We need to be multi-generational. We need to be multi-racial. We need to be multi-background. We need to be a multi, not a mono. And the third thing is that if this gospel is for everyone, then the logical conclusion is that the gospel is also for you. P- perhaps as you were listening to Acts 16, and you're listening to you know Paul seeing these three people come to understand the gospel, you related more to Lydia. I mean, you, you have a great job. You, you're making enough money. You're like, you're going to be able to retire. Like, life is good. But maybe because life is good, you're not really seeking God. Like, like you come here on Sundays or maybe you're listening to this on online and, and yeah, you consider yourself a, a Christian. But if you're honest, God is more of a side thing than a central thing. But Lydia was seeking after God. Are you seeking? Are you pursuing him? Even if you've been a Jesus follower for 40 some years, he invites you to continue to seek him because the gospel is for you. See, the gospel isn't just this thing, and we're going to see this more on, on this coming Sunday. The gospel isn't just this thing that gets you saved and then it's done. It's the gospel that continues to sanctify you, that continues the process of making you more like Jesus. And if you don't look fully like Jesus, where you are fully loving like Jesus loved and living like Jesus lived, then God is not done with you. So are you seeking him? Maybe it wasn't Lydia that you felt like you could relate to. Maybe he was actually the slave girl. Maybe as you looked at her story, you're thinking, yeah, I, I feel like an outcast. I feel like a, a nobody. Or maybe you actually feel spiritually oppressed. Maybe you wouldn't go as far as to say that you're demonically possessed. You definitely feel like God is far away from you. And I want you to know the gospel is for you. Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins. He invites you to put your faith in him. Jesus rose again from the dead. So you're not like other religions where you're following the teachings of some dead uh, master. Like you're following a risen savior. You can give your life to him and follow him into all of life. He, through the gospel, can free you. He can free you from your addiction. He can free you from your past. He can free you from whatever it is that is holding you down and holding you back. But it means you got to come to him and accept what Jesus did on a cross for you. But maybe it's not Lydia or the slave girl. I have a feeling that most people listening to this, the person you probably could relate to the most is the, the uh, jailer. He was middle class probably took his job seriously. He's responsible, but he's probably bored. And then he has this opportunity to hear about Jesus through the songs and the prayers of Paul and Silas. And you're listening to this and you're hearing about Jesus and how much he loves you. Will you do just as the jailer did? Or would you say, God, what must I do to be saved? If you've never given your life to Jesus, I'm going to invite you. Would you do that right now? I mean, totally feel free to push pause on this and just simply say, God, I I realize you're real. This whole Jesus story is true. And so because Jesus gave his life, 
for me, I now want to give my life to follow you. And if you pray that sincerely, everything changes. You're no longer spiritually separated from God. You are now connected to him. You're no longer spiritually dead. You now become spiritually alive. That's what it means to be born again. You're, you're no longer the spiritual orphan. You now become a son or a daughter of the most high God. And when that happens, when you put your faith in Jesus, it brings you joy. I mean, just look at what happened to these three characters. Lydia, as soon as she puts her faith in Jesus, she and her family are baptized in that river right there. And she comes out of the water. She looks at Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. And she says, if you guys think I'm being faithful, if you know I've made the right decision here, would you guys please come stay with me? My house is plenty big enough. I can feed you guys. I would be my honor. She has experienced the love of God. And because she's felt his love and grace, she now wants to give love and grace. So she's like, I'm going to be generous. Jesus was so generous to die on the cross for me. I'm going to be generous and let you guys just stay at my house. She's filled with joy and she wants to share it. Now, we don't know exactly what happens with the slave girl, but we do know what happened with the jailer. Look at it there with me. The end of uh, the last verse that we read, uh, 16, Acts 16, verse 34. It says that then he, the jailer, brought them, meaning Paul and Silas, up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. When you find joy, Jesus, you find joy. Too many of us are looking for joy in life, in our job, in our possessions, in our relationships. Maybe it's with a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend or in our kids. Maybe we're trying to find our joy in a new car or a new house or a new toy those things can be good and great, but they're never going to bring you genuine joy. That joy will always fade. Genuine joy, lasting joy, true joy is found in Jesus. That's why I invite you to give your life to him. Make Jesus the center of who you are. Make him the core of your identity. And it doesn't mean life's going to become perfect. Everything's not, you're not just going to be instantly healed. You're, you, it's not going to just suddenly give you the job. Can God do that? Yes. But will he? I don't know. What I do know is he invites you to find him and follow him. And when you follow Jesus, now you get to step into genuine joy. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this. I'm going to pray in just a second, but I just want to invite you. Hey, Join us each Sunday at Riverwood down at Drosty Hall in uh, Waverly, Iowa, down at the Bremer County Fairgrounds. We'd love to have you just join us in this Philippians series. Uh, we, we jump into Philippians 1 next week now that we've kind of established the context. And we're going to see how Paul, he had joy in the people. That's what we're going to see next week, joy in others. But we're also going to see the joy that he invites his readers into, which includes us. And so would you join us on this Philippians journey as we discover true joy? So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for whoever's listened to this. I'm glad they took the time. I pray that this has been helpful. And uh, would you just help them to continue to go deeper with you? Uh, would you accomplish in them what you want to, what you need to? I believe that you have an amazing, great plan for them and their life. But in order for you to do that great work through them, I believe you want to do a great work in them. So help them, Father, to just sit, to find joy in your presence, just to be in you. And as you work in them, 
May they just naturally let you flow through them, being in a tremendous blessing to others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.